Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Hawa Crickmore. Hawa is a published author and health and social care provider. She is currently registered manager of HLC Care Agency in Dartford, Kent, supporting the vulnerable to help meet their care needs. Uh, Hawa, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, um, Scott. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure for us to uh, welcome you onto the uh, the programme. Um, might not be the nicest day weather-wise for it, but hopefully we can still uh, nevertheless um, enjoy the fact that we're inside and out of the uh, the cold weather. Um, normally, we dive straight in to the subject of leadership on the show and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation now heavily that has impacted the care industry, I do feel it's appropriate that we start with that. Uh, to what extent has it affected you and your operations in the sector? Yeah, everyone in one way or the other have been affected by the coronavirus. The whole nation was suddenly confronted with the virus. It was a panic and it still is. We still don't know the nature of the virus and scientists are struggling to get a vaccine sooner. The government had to balance sustaining the economy and also manage COVID-19 and its detrimental effect on the people. As a care company, I am affected by both. You know, the government is, mm. uh, has uh, put in place lockdown, and that will mean shutting the source of our resources. And then also focusing on COVID-19 could lead to loss of life if, if focus is not there, if they are not tackling the COVID-19 problem, it will lead to loss of life. life. My job as a manager of a care company is to protect the vulnerable individuals as well as my staff in this hard times. It was declared that lack of CP caused the higher number of deaths among frontline workers and that my job as a manager to stop. This is challenging for health and social care sector. I and my team are in our aim is to protect uh, our service users from the virus and saving lives. Our clients are mostly those at risk and vulnerable. So it's been a major, major challenge for you, as you say, you've been affected, yes. of course, by the PP shortage, which has been, of course, a, um, a an international problem. Um, now, of course, we've seen some tremendous strides on that side of things, because now, of course, um, we have 90% of our PP manufactured here in the UK. So that is something that has stabilised over time. But even so, yeah. there's still an awful amount of sort of criticism of um, certain elements of the government's strategy to handling the pandemic. And I understandably so in some quarters but with all of that criticism that is out there 
Do you think that leadership, particularly in a political sense at the moment, is perhaps as celebrated and appreciated as maybe it should be in this country? Because it's a very difficult job, isn't it? Yes, leadership is a very difficult job. And this is the time that it's being tested because um, we are confronted with the unexpected. So um, something that you are not expecting, you have to act swiftly, you know, to get it done in such a way that nobody will help. It, it should be done in a way that um, it will uh, help, you know, and alleviate hardship uh, in the system. So, um, yes, being a leader in this hard time is very difficult. But, well, it's something that um, we can manage, yes. We can do it, yes. With support available, yes, we will be able to, to do it. And that is what um, I am doing now. As a leader, being a leader, a leader is a nominated person whose responsibility is to steer the affairs of a unit towards meeting its objectives. So with this problem about, I should be able to do, because I am nominated, I am there. I, the others around me, my team, are looking up to me to come out with something mm. to help them to manage uh, the situation. And that is what I am here to do with my team. And of course, um, preparing your team to, of course, deal with uh, these situations, it requires a lot of um, sort of mental health management, I can imagine, because it's been tremendous what they've had to, of course, deal with in the care industry. There have been so many stories from the front line of people having to sort of stay in um, their care homes, not being able to go home because of the risks of transmission to family and to vulnerable people within care homes. It's been a very difficult time in that sense. Yes, it is. Yes, I think I should have uh, finished with my definition of leadership. A good leader leads by example, mm. builds a strong and reliable team by embracing the, the uniqueness in each member of the team towards positive outcomes. Therefore, as a care manager, I need to invest in my team so I will be able to delegate tasks and responsibilities to members who are trained and well-informed. This approach ignites motivation and a sense of ownership to the team they belong to. Yeah, so um, with all that uh, is happening these days, um, I need a strong team to support me. Mm. You know, I need a strong team to support me. And to get a strong team, I have to invest in them. You know, I have to invest more so that they have this sense of ownership and loyalty so that they will be able to uh, give more. I mean, just give more, a little bit more to sacrifice for uh, for uh, the work that our processes, the work that we do. So, yes, leadership is difficult and it entails a lot of things. And also... The team, your team members, you are a member, you, you too, not that you are uh, outside the team. No, you are not you, you are not just a leader here and the team here. No, you are part of the team and you have been nominated to lead the team. And to do that, you have to um, uh, respect and acknowledge each member's uniqueness and skills that they have so that 
they will be able to do more. Mm. And of course, part of leadership as well is balancing being proactive with being reactive and being able to adapt to swiftly changing circumstances and guidelines. And that's been incredibly important in the context of COVID-19. With the proactivity side of things um, in mind in particular, however, I'd be interested to understand how it's been sort of planning for the eventuality of a second wave of cases, because it seems to be that we are entering that wave at the moment. Yeah, of course. Um, the, um, I deal with domiciliary care. What we do is that we go to clients' homes uh, to support them with their personal care and things like support them with medication and stuff, help them with their food and drink. So we come in direct contact with the service user. And what we need to do is to protect our service user from getting the virus. That's is very important. And also, we also have to protect our staff because they go from one care and one client to the other client. So we don't want them to carry this virus from one person to the other. So what we need to do is to vet them to make sure that the people we are sending out there in the community are safe. They are clear from the virus so that they don't infect anyone with it, and they themselves also don't get the infection. And what we do as well is we rely greatly, hugely on information. Information, because um, we are helping social care uh, uh, workers, and most of our support networks, you know, we have support networks. We don't just operate on our own. We, we work with other people. And our support network includes um, the NHS, the, the Department of Health and Social Care, the Care Policy Commission, Health for Care, to obtain guidance, you know, to obtain information on what to do to protect our clients. For example, if we are to shield a service user, they have guidance there that we need to follow so that we do it properly and that person is protected. And the terror the terror who goes there to will be what protected. So we rely hugely on the information that we get. So if the information comes from information that comes from um, all these sectors are not clear, then it means those organizations will make mistakes. So um, uh, it is important that um, these uh, organizations to continue to support us, give us the support that we need. And as a manager, mine is to receive. I have to respect. I have to always go online, go to these websites to get this information. The new updates that come on that comes on uh, um, COVID nineteen. Um, and then um, inform my carers too. Let my carers know. Train them. Let them know what they have to do to go there so that uh, they protect themselves and also protect the vulnerable individuals.
Mm, it is indeed very important. Now, unfortunately, um, Howard, um, our time on the programme today is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do wrap things up, I would like to talk about the future because over the course of the year, the next few months, we know the new normal is going to be here to stay perhaps until the spring um, when hopefully by that point we do have a working vaccine in place. But over this next year, um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the uh, the winter months and trying to stem the tide with COVID? And indeed, hopefully, when we can leave the pandemic behind, where do you see yourselves being maybe this time sort of next year? Well, if uh, the pandemic has come to uh, stay or whatever, life will still have to go on. We will still have our vulnerable adults around. So um, we have to balance COVID-19, um, managing COVID-19, and also uh, looking after our um, our vulnerable people. So it will all depend on um, a risk assessment that should be put in place. Risk assessment. Every company should have a risk assessment on how they should they are going, planning. Sorry, how they are planning to deal with COVID-19 in whichever case. You know. Um, we, we do have flu, we do have HIV, all the rest. They are, they are still there, they are still there, but we still move on. We, we, we carry on with life, isn't it? So if COVID-19 is still there, we still will have to move on with our life. But we need a risk assessment. We need structures in place that will help us move on. We shouldn't let COVID-19 bring our economy down. That is mm. not on. Yes, there must be a balance. There must be a balance. And that balance will come from um, policy makers on how uh, uh, businesses should come out with their risk assessment to deal with COVID-19 and how they are also dealing with it in terms of um, um, getting a vaccine and things like that. But life must go on that we shouldn't allow COVID-19 to put the whole nation down. We have to move on and we must move on. Yes, you're absolutely right. We must do. And hopefully, of course, policymakers do step up to the plate and really make that possible. Howard, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today and um, very, very thought provoking indeed, I must say. And most importantly, I think um, it would be wonderful for us to welcome you back onto the uh, the programme at some point in the uh, the next year, just to see if we can start to see policymakers making some of those steps that we do need to be seeing and just review just where we're at as a country at that point. Thank you. That, that, that would be great. That would be mm, great. I certainly and would also, welcome I would that. Like to talk. Can, I, can I ask something? Uh, yes, yes, Hello? of course. Yes. If, um, also, we have um, our challenges with the uh, domiciliary care agencies. Our, our challenge, one of our greatest challenges is uh, this test and trace thing. Mm. You know, if um, our carer um, is tested positive, that means they have to um, isolate, self-isolate, and should not go to their, their clients. And that affects our staffing. It's, even if it, is, if it is their family member who has been tested positive, they have to self-isolate. And if you have about five or six people self-isolating, you see how that is going to affect uh, the people that we care for. And that is one of our biggest biggest challenges in health and social care, especially those of us who do home care. 
Mm. There has to be more widespread access to testing in these scenarios, doesn't there, to understand who has the virus, who doesn't, because just having people isolating en masse, it is a problem, as you say. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Mm. Hopefully we do see some resolution to that as testing capacity does increase, which is something the government are looking to do. Um, we are yeah. just about out of time, Howard, but thank you again so, yes, so much for joining right. us. Okay. Thank you for having me. It's Thanks been a real, me. real thank pleasure. You. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And um, do also okay. take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Yeah, thank you. And have a good day yourself as well Mm -hmm. Howard thank you ever so much for your time today Um, it was a real real pleasure welcoming Howard Crickmore onto our programme today and coming up next on the programme we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership as well as serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and he has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015. That interview will be coming up very shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods, and services, I'm not sure, 
what we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the 
challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh 
shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps 
to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.